Welcome to this week's episode of The Read Out Loud, a weekly biotech podcast from STAT. I'm Damian Garde. I'm Adam Forestine. And I'm Rebecca Robbins. It is Thursday, September 3rd, and we are somehow closing in on six months of this pandemic. Here's what we're going to talk about this week. First up, Eric Topol of Scripps Research dials in to talk about his sharp criticism of FDA Commissioner Stephen Hahn. Next up, our STAT colleague Matt Herper joins us to discuss timelines for the ongoing COVID vaccine trials and how one or more of these might be approved early. Finally, STAT's op-ed page, First Opinion, hit a milestone this week, publishing its 2000th piece. We talked to First Opinion editor Patrick Skerritt for a look behind the scenes and a glimpse of the future. But first, a word from our sponsor. RNAi therapeutics treat the root genetic cause of disease rather than the symptoms by silencing the expression of the genes that make disease-causing proteins. Alnylam has pioneered RNAi therapeutics by translating the Nobel Prize-winning discovery of RNAi into an innovative new class of medicines, which we believe has limitless possibilities. Learn more at alnylam.com statnews. That's A-L-N-Y-L-A-M dot forward slash statnews. Eric Topol of Scripps Research Institute in San Diego is a cardiologist, a geneticist, and an AI researcher. In his own books, media interviews, and his Twitter account, he has never been one to hold back about his opinion. But I think even with that context in mind, Eric has been particularly sharp in his criticism these past few days of FDA Commissioner Stephen Hahn. He's been particularly critical in the way that Hahn is handling COVID-19. Eric joins us now to talk about why he's so concerned about what's going on at the FDA. Eric, welcome back to The Read Out Loud. Thanks very much, Rebecca. So, Eric, you wrote an open letter this week titled, Dear Commissioner Hahn, Tell the Truth or Resign. Can you walk us through the argument you made therein? Right. Well, this was an outgrowth of the press conference, the, the one that was described as the very historic breakthrough press conference on August 23rd on Sunday, which occurred, by the way, a day after uh, Donald Trump sent a, a tweet to Steve FDA uh, wondering why things are being held up. And then later that day, on the Saturday, the 22nd, there was an announcement there was going to be a breakthrough press conference. So that conference was uh, actually extraordinary. You know, we had uh, President Trump, Secretary Azar of HHS, and Stephen Pond of uh, FDA, all saying how this was uh, this life-saving, incredible breakthrough. And there was no data to support it. That was just incredible. And the misstatements that Dr. Hahn made were egregious. So I started uh, on Twitter that day uh, writing things of my concern, and I expected that Dr. Hahn would quickly correct everything. But it took him about 24 hours before he started a little Twitter thread. He didn't admit really to anything. He wrote, uh, I had absolute and relative uh, somewhat uh, confused. And he, <laughs> he never backed down, essentially. So I felt it was imperative to put together a letter asking him to tell the truth and correct fully on the record that there are no data to support survival advantage of convalescent plasma at this juncture. I also did reach out to him directly through phone and through direct messages. He never responded to any. He had his social media director uh, tell me he was passing it on multiple times, but that was all I got. So, you know, the, the frustration of lack of response and knowing he uh, did not correct the misrepresentations uh, made me have to write a long letter 
an open letter because obviously that was uh, important for everyone to see the issues. So Stephen Hahn said in, in several of his recent media interviews that he would be willing to give an emergency authorization to a coronavirus vaccine even before the phase three clinical trials are completed. You know, again, he would do that if the benefits can be shown to outweigh the risks. Uh, Hahn also said that he wouldn't do so to please Donald Trump. So on Twitter, you called the idea of expediting a vaccine approval quote, effing outrageous, irrespective of Han's subservience to Trump, end quote. Explain to us why you were so concerned about Han's comments here. Right, Adam. Well, we now know that Steve Han is uh, truly subservient, not independent of uh, Trump's inclinations and political motivations. To have a vaccine, uh, to have uh, an emergency use authorization uh, prior to the election day, that's been clear, abundantly uh, apparent. So uh, we have someone who we can't trust. And we also know that a, a premature approval of any kind for a vaccine puts the whole vaccine program, all of them, in remarkable jeopardy. Because if it is getting any uh, approval early, it can sink the whole exit strategy, the main way that we can get out of the COVID um, situation that we live in right now, this crisis, and get back to a pre-COVID semblance of normal life. So everything's on the line if something is done wrong here. And we have someone who we can't trust. uh, And we have political motives, a true subservience of FDA, the likes of which I've never seen in, you know, my 30 plus years of interacting with FDA. So we mentioned at the outset that you know, you've never been shy about sharing your opinion about things that you find alarming in, in the world of science and medicine. But it does seem as a longtime follower that you're particularly worked up about this particular issue. I was curious, you know, what's at stake? What is really driving you uh, on this one to really react so strongly? Thanks, Damien. I think, you know, I try to temper my concerns unless it's really outrageous. This one is outrageous. And there's multiple reasons for that. You know, the first is that um, this was a data torturing, data dredging, that you rarely will see a preprint, not peer-reviewed, where in that analysis of 35,000 people with no control group, no placebo, no anything, uh, just looking at slicing and dicing the data, cherry-picking you know, by age, by whether they had innovation, uh, by, by what was the status of their antibody titers that were determined later. All these subgroups finally you know, coming up with this one group that derives some benefit. And that's unacceptable to use data like that. He knows better. He's an oncologist. He's done research. He knows that you can't do that. But he did it. He did it to uh, go along with the president's whims and and obviously his his, uh, motivations to announce a breakthrough, which happened to be, by the way, the evening before the Republican National Convention. I'm sure that's just a coincidence. I actually don't have a problem with an emergency use approval. I have a problem with using data in a, a way that is unacceptable, inappropriate. And, and you know, I, I think the question is, did he do it deliberately? Did he lie deliberately? Or that he just made a, a you know, just a horrible error. But to claim 35%, and he was really adamant about this, 35 lives saved per 100 people sick with COVID. So that's one part of the story. But the other part is he is now uh, providing oversight for this vaccine. And that is uh, really troubling. And the the point here, Damien, is that 
the science um, along the COVID experience has been extraordinary. The velocity of developing the antibodies into neutralizing antibodies through structural biology and crystal structure of these atom by atom mapping of the virus and the antibodies and vaccines has been amazing. And that can all be thrown out the window by a premature approval because we know that when this is given to millions of people, there are going to be some untoward reactions. And we know that we uh, that there's an issue about how efficacious the vaccines will be. But if you release this too early, uh, without the known data that we, we, we absolutely have to have, uh, this vaccine trust, the public trust, which is essential and it's very fragile right now, we could lose that. And then we'll never get to the kind of uh, immunity around the population that we need to get out of uh, the COVID uh, situation. So everything's on the line here. Uh, all the great science is being put, you know, a serious threat. So Eric, what else needs to be done to fix the problems you see at the FDA? The problem we have now is there's only a matter of weeks between now and when the uh, vaccine advisory committee is going to convene October 23rd. And he has already indicated that he doesn't have to follow their recommendations. But my preference would be uh, for Steve Hahn to tell the truth, show his independence, admit the mistakes, uh, which are very deep. They're not just about convalescent plasma. They go back to the EUA on hydroxychloroquine. They go along with the remdesivir expanded indication. Uh, the um, issue about tests at the very beginning of the pandemic that we were we had no testing capacity. And a lot of that is related to uh, Steve Hahn. So, you know, he's made a series of errors. He's not even been in the job for a year. But, you know, he certainly could do the right thing here. Eric, thanks for coming on the show. Sure. And I'm glad to have a chance to talk with you. All the great stuff you're doing at Stat News, we all appreciate it. We reached out to the FDA asking them for comment on Eric's criticisms, but we did not hear back. As Eric Topol just expressed in his interview with us, there is widespread concern that U.S. regulators under political pressure, will approve a COVID-19 vaccine before it has demonstrated safety and efficacy. This could have disastrous consequences if the vaccine turns out to be ineffective or unsafe, or if approving vaccines early prevents scientists from collecting the data needed to determine their efficacy and safety. But if you listen to the drug makers developing COVID-19 vaccines, or even respected government scientists like Tony Fauci, they say there's also a chance for vaccines to demonstrate their worth in just a matter of months. So this is all very confusing. And to help us untangle it, we're joined by our stat colleague, Matt Herper. Matt wrote a story this week explaining the complicated process by which the COVID vaccine trials will be analyzed. Matt, welcome back to the podcast. Thanks for having me. I actually left the really complicated stuff out. <laughs> so Matt, let's start with the FDA and its requirements for the full approval of a COVID-19 vaccine. What are those? They're very clear. The vaccine is supposed to be at least 50% effective, but what the FDA really wants is for you to prove that there's really no chance that it's less than 30% effective. And you're supposed to have 3,000 patients followed for at least a year or two. So we also know that the ongoing phase three clinical trials are designed to allow for early or interim analyses of the data. Why is this being done? And who's in charge of these interim looks? So this is very important because if one of these vaccines is approved early, there's a good chance it will be because of an interim analysis. 
Now, there were a lot of questions about how this was being done. I kind of think that this still hasn't been spelled out enough uh, by the drug makers or uh, by the NIH. But it seems to be the normal process that those of us who cover trials are used to, where there is an independent committee called a Data Safety and Monitoring Board that's paying attention to the data and looks at these analyses and will only find out the results of the analysis if the vaccine works and works much better than expected. With that framework in mind, can you give us an example of how such an early look at data might result in what the FDA calls an emergency use authorization, which is basically a conditional approval for a vaccine before the full results are known? The first of these looks appears to be the one in the Pfizer trial, which Pfizer said will happen at 32 cases of symptomatic COVID-19. It's very unlikely the trial would stop then. But if it were the case that you had, say, two cases of COVID in the vaccine group and 30 in the placebo group, you might be looking at a vaccine that's effective enough that we could already say that it's met the efficacy parameters. And then you have the issue, which is really to some degree being left to the DSMB of, is there enough other data to call the trial done? But All of these trials are going to be having more of these analyses. They may be doing them at 50, 100, and 150, for instance. And you could see how once you get a third or halfway through the study, if the vaccine is much more effective than the kind of minimum bars that are being set, no one wants to miss a vaccine, so these studies are overpowered, you could end up with a study stopping because the effectiveness is already proven. And then you would have safety follow-up of all those participants, but you would lose the placebo group. So some of the experts that you spoke with, Bat, uh, say these early looks at vaccine trial results should not be done. Why is that? It's putting a lot of pressure on the DSMB uh, to make sure that we collect enough other data. And if the safety data are important, you don't have to do an interim look. You don't have to say, that you're going to stop the trial once you reach the efficacy parameters. And there are, I mean, the case of the rotavirus um, vaccine, where there was a huge trial done really to see if there was there was this rare side effect. And they ended up looking at 70,000 patients, and the side effect happened in, I think, five and six in each group. So if we want to collect all that data, the argument goes, why even give yourself the option of stopping. So Matt, to the best of your ability, lay out a timeline for us. What should we expect to see this fall from the COVID-19 vaccines? It's very unpredictable. The thing you have to remember about a timeline is that the cases don't start being counted until a person has had both shots of their vaccine, until you'd think they would be protected. So for instance, for the Pfizer trial, that's five weeks. You know, you're looking at a month or two from the start of the trials. Now, Two of those trials have already started. Pfizer has said a first interim could occur this month. I'd assume that's late this month. So if one of these comes out early, we're really probably looking at October. You know, and it might not take until the end of the year to completely finish these trials to get that 150 or so cases and really have a final answer. So the question really is, do any of these come out kind of before October, November, we obviously have the everyone's worried because of Election Day. Um, And Election Day is very tight. The end of the year isn't so tight for a lot of these trials. You've got Pfizer, BioNTech, Moderna, 
Johnson and Johnson, AstraZeneca, all of these really huge trials, and it looks like a really high COVID infection rate. So we could be collecting data very quickly, but I'd say finding out by that October 22nd advisory committee or by November could be tight. It won't be surprising if we have data by the end of the year. Matt, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. statnews.com, you know that we publish op-eds under a section called First Opinion. Over the past five years, that section has hosted debates on genome editing, arguments about drug pricing, and the opinions of Chelsea Clinton, Anthony Fauci, and Chuck Grassley, among others. This week, Stat published its 2000th First Opinion. To commemorate that and to get a glimpse behind the scenes, we're joined by Patrick Skerritt, who is Stat's First Opinion editor. Pat, thanks for coming on the podcast. Well, I really appreciate you having me on. It's an adventure. So, Pat, to edit and publish 2,000 op-ed submissions, how many have you turned down over the last five years? I have read almost 10,000 first opinion submissions. So 8,000, I had to say thanks, but no thanks. I keep track because I like to know who's submitting and where they're coming from and what that kind of constellation of ideas is all about. And Pat, why do you reject uh, submissions? Like, What gets the thumbs down? There are a lot of reasons. Um, some are, they're not understandable. Some are promotional rather than informational. It's really difficult for the CEO of a company that creates some kind of test to talk about why we need more testing for that thing in the country. Others are just uh, not in our wheelhouse or kind of beyond the fringe. So off the top of your head, Pat, which first opinion column led to the strongest or most surprising reaction once it was published? <laughs> I'll tell you a story about one weekend when I was uh, the stat editor on call on Friday, we published a piece about why many of the anti-vax arguments were wrong. So this was on a Friday. And it was when we had comments open indefinitely. Over that weekend, I moderated more than 850 comments from a Friday afternoon until a Sunday when I finally turned comments off. So that's gotten a lot of strong reaction. The other topic or topics that have gotten strong reactions are by a pair of docs who were talking about opioid prescribing and not leaving out people who depend on opioids and have depended on opioids for years to control chronic pain. They were still getting responses when we changed our comment policy. So the majority of first opinion writers are experts in various fields or, or people with firsthand experience with a given topic, but some are cabinet secretaries, CEOs, and elected officials. I was curious, how is the process different for when the contributor is a powerful person? And also, how do you break it to, for example, sitting senators that they need a stronger lead? The process isn't really different. Before coming to STAT, I worked at Harvard Medical School, helping Harvard doctors and faculty members write health information for consumers. They can be a pretty prickly bunch. Uh, and I, I learned early on that it's just best to be direct. And it helps to tell somebody that their lead really stinks if you can point them to a better iteration. And most people really who don't write for a living are, I think, actually grateful to have somebody edit and advise and 
especially when they see that the finished product maybe is not only a little cleaner than what they had submitted, but actually tells their story better. So I approach the head of the WHO the same as I do a patient who has a story to tell. Although I find those latter ones a lot more fun to do because they're real stories and it's fun to help people tell a story. This year, there's been a lot of debate about the role of op-ed pages in society and the line between encouraging free debate and giving airtime to dangerous ideas. So, Pat, how do you approach soliciting and accepting first opinions on some of these sensitive topics? A good chunk of my day is reading what's out there and learning who might be a good contributor and and just cold calling, cold emailing people to say, I saw your piece. Next time, please consider STAT for a platform for your ideas. The concept of dangerous ideas, one person's dangerous idea is another person's, hey, let's have this discussion. Um, so it's, it's difficult to decide what constitutes a dangerous idea, especially, I mean, there are three of us on first opinion, me, myself, and I, and we often have a great discussion between the three of us about what to accept and, and what not to accept. I think anything that really crosses a line in terms of, of harm would get the thumbs down. We really haven't gotten any anti-vax or cogent anti-vax first opinions yet. And if we did, I would really want some help from my colleagues trying to figure out whether we should publish it or not, because I don't agree with that sentiment, but there's a voice there. And in some cases, people need to be heard. I think that kind of reflects well on on stat that we are not seen as the destination for uh, columns from anti-vaccine activists. <laughs> I'm with you, Rebecca. So last thing, Pat, do you have a dream first opinion contributor you would love to publish but haven't yet managed to wrangle? I don't, actually. Would I mind a really interesting one from the President of the United States on the things that, that we cover? No, I would love that. Um, but I think that some of the first opinions that resonate the most come from people that I knew nothing about before they, they wrote. I got a, a lovely one in the early part of the pandemic from a woman whose grandmother lived through the flu pandemic of 1918. And she wrote a story about how in those days, people tied a white scarf to their door to let other people know that the flu was within. It was a wonderful essay and I think showed people a little bit about where we'd been and where we're going and got a lot of traffic and great kudos for her. She was asked to do uh, another podcast and, and other things. So it, it really gave her a platform as well. I think those are the ones that I find the most rewarding. In terms of bending the curve somewhere, I never know where that's going to happen during Ebola. The new Ebola vaccine was not being tested on pregnant women. And three researchers from Hopkins wrote a really forceful essay saying and showing why that was ethically wrong. And not that long later, the WHO changed course and now is including pregnant women and children in its uh, vaccine testing. So you never know where a first opinion that's really going to change things is going to come from. Pat, thanks for joining us. My pleasure.
that does it for another episode of The Read Out Loud. Thank you to Hyacinth Empanado, who produced this week's episode. Alyssa Ambrose is our senior producer, and Rick Burke is our executive producer. And as always, we would love to hear from you. Tell us what you liked about this week's episode, what you didn't like, and whose view you would like to read in Stat's first opinion section. You can do all of that by sending us an email at readoutloud at statnews.com. And if you like what we do, leave a review or a rating on Apple Podcasts or whichever platform you use to get your podcasts. See you next week.